Agent Grinshaw. Still working on this Gibson thing. No, Chief. You, you gotta give me more time. Have you even listened to the recordings? It's like an encyclopedia of this hacker stuff. One of them just keeps going on and on about everything that ever went wrong on the internet. No. Nobody knows this kind of crap. He's obviously up to no good. Yeah, the one called Hackalope. No. How is it not illegal? The information is dangerous. Oh, and, and the other one. The other one. Y Ymir. No, he's always going on about everything the CIA and FBI did wrong. All the wiretap stuff, all the crazy projects. How does he know? We already know he's infiltrated NASA, and I am this close to catching him skipping leg day. Now just ask yourself, Chief. What would J. Edgar Hoover do? Come, Chief. All I need is more time. Sooner or later they're gonna slip up and I will catch them. Hacking the Gibson. Uh, the accounting subdirector of the Gibson's working really hard. I think we got a hacker. Hey, Amir. Yeah. Where are we right now? We're actually in person, which is very odd given the past year. <laughs> yeah. In fact, I think this is our first episode ever in person. Yeah, because I was supposed to come out to D.C. at one point. Um, and then there was a fun fire. So yes. that never happened. So, yeah. So we're in Vegas. I just came from Black Hat uh, 2023 and Black Hat US 2023, and we're going to be going to DEF CON. Mm -hmm. And um, since Yermir didn't get to go to Black Hat, and neither did probably a lot of you, <laughs> I'm going to talk about all the things that I saw at Black Hat. Yeah. Not many of us have a company that will pay for it. I twist their arm. Um, yeah. they, they, they've receded for a while, which is why <laughs> I, I feel the gall to have a podcast. Right, yeah. <laughs> This is what happens when you go to Black Hat, folks. Huh. Um, you, you, you think you know everything. Yeah, exactly. Um, no, actually, the real story <laughs> is that you go to Black Hat and you think that you know nothing. Yeah, you're like, I don't know anything. And the truth is somewhere in the middle. <laughs> anyway, the last time we talked about Black Hat stuff, Black Hat and DEF CON stuff, uh -huh. the subject that was kind of pervading everything was ransomware that time. Right, yeah. This time it was AI. Okay, yeah, makes sense, given... Yeah. All the news and everything. Yeah. Well, so, like, you know, we had a keynote, and I unfortunately, I, I, I was dumb enough not to put in my notes who the keynote speaker was. I'll, I'll, I will dig it up. But uh, she was talking about AI and cybersecurity mm -hmm. and stuff. And there was a lot of insights that came even out of the keynote before we get into some of the talks. Um, one thing that stuck in my head was Jeff Moss, Dark, Dark Tangent, and we'll refer to him as Dark Tangent from now on as, as per the rules of the podcast. Mm. Um, right, yeah. Well, Dark Tangent was saying that AI is really good at making predictions. So all AI problems, all problems that we're trying to apply to AI, uh, AI to are reduced to making predictions. Right. So yeah. when you're thinking about how do I apply AI to a problem, mm -hmm. the first question you ask is, what am I predicting? Yeah, okay. And then you work backwards from there because AIs are good at making predictions. Right, yeah, yeah. Uh, the, the keynote speaker uh, was uh, uh, Guardians of the AI Era, was uh, Maria Marcus Theater, M A R K S T E D R. I'm butchering yeah. it, I know. I'm, I'm, I'm going to, yeah, I have no idea. Yeah. Um, but just been thinking a lot about AI defense and how do we make AI reasonably good. Mm -hmm. um, and this is the thing that, that, that comes up 
a lot and kind of goes back to one of the philosophical things that I talked about logging, which is thinking about data first. Correct. That clean data sets versus da dirty data sets, um, a lot of the attacks on AI, and we're going to talk a little bit about one of them later, come from how clean is the data that's going in. Mm -hmm. And that goes for both the training set and the data that is being used when you're when you're actually processing AI stuff. Okay, yeah. And again, we're going to get into some of that. The th another thing that really struck me was how quickly this has happened. Mm -hmm. Because OpenAI, the folks that make ChatGPT, right. they got their billion-dollar investment from Microsoft in 2019. Oh, really? Yeah. Okay. They've been operating before that, but mm -hmm. like the big investment that let them really scale up happened just four years ago. Mm. Okay. And then they reinvested another $2 billion to really scale things up again, again in 2022. Mm -hmm. So the thing for me was people were talking about OpenAI and uh, GPT-3 was started to really make people's heads turn. Right, yeah, yeah. Uh, around that time, I thought that this was, that I had missed the boat on it. But in <laughs> fact, I was hearing about it when it was really getting going. Mm -hmm. So it hasn't been around that long. And the hype around large mo language model AI, which is ChatGPT, GPT-3, GPT-4, mm. is really recent. And the hype has been happening for a remarkably short period of time. I saw some graphs that basically show a spike happening not even a year ago. Well, I mean, it feels like it's been forever because it's what <laughs> we've been hearing. Yeah. Basically. But the everybody trying to apply AI to everything, mm -hmm. um, like the real juice was, has not been going on for very long. That really, like I kind of could have figured that out myself, right? but it just, it wasn't clicking in kind of the way that I felt about it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So there was a couple of items, a couple of, of, of aspects of it that, that I put in my notes as like things to remember about AI. One is the idea of modality. Mm. The stuff that we're thinking of right now is unimodal, one mode of taking input, and that's text. Right, right. And then the, the image gener uh, image uh, merging stuff is like the is an image mode, mm -hmm. any kind of, uh, stuff like that. Text to image is still unimodal to, to, as an input, and then it generates an output. When they say multimodal, they mean about of reading multiple kinds of inputs at the same time. Right. Whether it's voice and graphic mm -hmm. and text at the same time. Mm -hmm. Text might be understanding what that graphic is or doing OCR type stuff. Mm -hmm. But uh, anything spoken needs to go through natural language processing to turn that into a textual input. Right, yeah. Um, so understanding that there that there is modality and that some of the things you're working with are unimodal and some of them are multimodal and one of the interesting things, in fact, I'm going to talk about the AI talk that, that was kind of, of the biggest deal to me right now, even though it was towards the end of, I think, the first day. They called it the advent of AI malware. And what they're talking about is what I will call memetic viruses. Okay. Which is essentially creating malicious prompts. And a lot of the ways that they did mm. that were by embedding prompts into web pages mm -hmm. uh, that were part of the input stream. Because when they embed uh, AI into a search engine, mm -hmm. it's not just taking the input you give, it's also looking mm -hmm. at your search history and the website you've got up right now. Right, yeah, yeah. 
And just like old SEO tricks of embedding a bunch of keywords mm -hmm. into non-visible HTML, yep. prompts for the AI can be done the same way. Mm, okay. Everything old is new again. <laughs> <laughs> so they showed that they could prompt the AI to ask the user their name. Mm -hmm. And when they did so, they or the way that they did it, they actually caused a certain amount of persistence in the AI asking for it. Because it's a natural language processing, the right. thing that it is good at is fluency, mm -hmm. is making it look like English. Yeah, yeah, yeah. When you say no, it tries to ask again, mm -hmm. or it will do some social engineering things of like, oh, I, I guess we'll, uh, we won't talk about that right now. And I'll give you the next answer, right. and then they'll do it, and then the, and then it'll ask again. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Stuff like that. Thing, things that that. We consider social engineering tricks come naturally to AI, <laughs> uh, but the persistence was very interesting. Hmm. And hmm. also with those prompts, they created what is essentially a mimetic cross-site scripting where the AI might supply a set of images if you asked about them, but the link that it would give you would be to the attacker's site, which would then redirect you to the actual answer. Right, <laughs> yeah. Which is crazy. So there was a lot of prompt injection stuff that they were doing and a lot of it seemed to go around the ability to hide their malicious prompts in your prompts had to do with taking advantage of multimodal inputs mm, okay which is why i was like okay i should mm -hmm. probably talk about that right now <laughs> <laughs> and part of what makes some of this scary is like they were like lots of people are using this for lots of stuff, uh, including like defense decision-making. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're getting way out in front of our skis in terms of how much we're willing to integrate AI's responses into things that we actually do. Uh -huh. Well, it's a new shiny tool. Yeah. Um, and the thing is, like, <laughs> going back to the, the, the keynote, what permissions do you give them? The reason you're asking AI to do a thing is because you want what they call, and this, this is another like AI term uh, that's worth remembering, a non-deterministic answer. Uh -huh. Like you, you, we were talking about Ansible earlier, or we're talking about like an instant response playbook with SOAR. Right. right? Yeah. Those are all deterministic. Uh -huh. You know, you meet this the things on this flow chart and X happens. Yeah, yeah. The reason you would use an AI is because you can't you can't make a flowchart that defines all of the answers. You mm -hmm. need a non-deterministic answer where one thing might happen or it might not happen based on kind of a a a, a cloud of po of possible factors rather mm -hmm. than a specific set of identified items. Right. But the thing is, if you want AI to do something. You're automating it by giving it permissions to do to actually execute actions, right? Right. Yeah. But the thing about AI is that you can test the model to see what inputs turn into what outputs, mm -hmm. but you don't know what happens inside the black box. Yeah. So you don't actually know the decisions mm -hmm. it's going to make. Mm -hmm. One can argue you can't do that for people either, but <laughs> <laughs> but I'm not true. sure that that makes me more more or less comfortable. Yeah. Um, I feel like there's a difference there, but I'm not sure I can articulate it right now. So one of the questions I had uh, coming from this was, like, I, right now I've been doing a lot of work trying to model the use of cloud behavior, mm -hmm. behaviors in our cloud environments, knowing that it's that I need to, like, profile what a few different kinds of 
use cases are without having them described to me because the documentation sucks. <laughs> right. Yeah. So the thing is, like, in that way, I'm kind of acting as an AI mm. because I'm trying to take the stream of log entries and turn it into a set of definitions. Right. Yeah. Well, if I've got an AI doing stuff that may not do always the same thing, mm-hmm. I'm giving it permissions to do stuff. How do I monitor it as if it were a person actor that could be malicious? And do I have an AI do that too? Mm. <laughs> yeah. Just hire AIs from that. Well, I mean, that's kind of the gleeful, you know, sociopathic executive case is, no, we're just going to make AIs do all of the work. Yeah, I'm just going to make some decisions. Yeah, you be a Netflix CEO and just be like, oh, they're going to write everything now. Exactly. It's like that th- That sounds like the cackling, snidely whiplash. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's not. <laughs> <laughs> we have the tweets to prove it. Yeah. <laughs> so from the keynote, first talk I went to was Defender Pretender, where they figured out how to subvert the updates going to Windows Defender. Okay. Um, they patched a lot of this stuff, but... They believed that this was not a that this vein was fully tapped. That mm. the, the patching that has happened mm. is is conclusive. Mm. Um, so it was very interesting. There, uh, a couple of things that I thought were interesting was that they were able to pull apart the update files, and in that is like a thirty thousand hash list of friendly whitelisted files. So they have fr- a friendly whitelist that oh. skip past uh, if they get the hash uh, match, they'll skip past analyzing. Okay. But, and that's just by default. That's not. Yeah. Oh my god. So when that seems mm-hmm. long processing time, this mm-hmm. is not a Microsoft shortcut. This is not like an unreasonable shortcut. Other products use similar shortcuts. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No. Um, I mean, I can think of two that I've worked with that, that do it that way. Yeah, I mean, you figure like, yeah, like you trust your own. Right. To I an know. extent, I've already I've already analyzed it. And hash collisions are hard. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> They're not impossible, so that might be a little bit, but... Mm-hmm. Yeah, but... Uh, but what was interesting was, because they were able to forge updates, they could add a file to the whitelist. Mm. Uh, mm-hmm. like things that would already be detected as known malware. Right. They can whitelist it and get bypass all of the signature system. <laughs> Another thing they could do, or they were able to do, were remove signatures. They actually have a tool that essentially greps for all the signatures with a string in it and uh-huh. removes them all from the set and then compiles them into the forged update. Oh, okay. Nice. And the last one that I thought was interesting was modifying a signature to cause uh, um, uh, automated deletions. So uh-huh. the, demonst- the thing that they demonstrated was basically <laughs> deleting all important system files. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but like one of, the, one of the things that I play around with every time I come to these things uh, for the last few years is can I write like at least the outline of a movie script around a lot of the stuff that I learned in mm. black and like real hacks and stuff can I string those together into a story and if the plot ever calls for having to delete a particular piece of information off of somebody's laptop this is how I do it yeah yeah <laughs> I, I was just thinking yeah like definitely like spy novel oh, like exactly like, how, how else will we get like you know the deletion of it's, these photos or right, exactly they've got this blackmail material how do i make it's like well you <laughs> you know what that material looks like right right yeah. yeah we can create a signature that identifies it and deletes it and as long as we can connive a way to get the update onto that person's system it gets deleted yeah oh that's interesting 
in this this intercepting of the updates. So there's no check um, when Windows pulling down the update files. There's no. Well, like... there actually are quite a few checks. Okay. Uh, they are signed files. Mm -hmm. There are there were flaws in the way that these signatures were validated. Oh, okay. Uh, it was actually very interesting, and it actually wasn't the only talk that was talking about signature validation flaws. Mm -hmm. um, there was another one by uh, an undergrad from Rochester Institute of Technology. Um, I, I, I only saw part of his talk, but uh, he was talking about the various the flaws in the way that Microsoft's sign, uh, uh, software signing system worked. And honestly, from what he was describing, I think they made a pretty good try at it, but he managed to find some flaws in it. Right, yeah. because it wasn't a simple checksum of the file. They actually checks did multiple checksum of sections of the binary of the binary metadata of the file mm -hmm. and combine those together into the digital signature. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, like they, they they were trying to think ahead, but apparently there was some flaw in their life. There okay, was some flaw in their life. And unfortunately, I this dragging a little bit for me, and I really wanted to get to another talk. <laughs> <laughs> um, all right, next thing, what they call Bing Bang. Uh, this is about uh, Azure Active Directory in like Azure apps. Okay. Azure Active Directory uses OAuth tokens, which are similar in a lot of ways to Kerberos and SAML tokens in that they are an assertion ticket mm -hmm. that you can use at, for a service provider. And it follows the same architecture of you have an identity provider, you have the authorization system, yeah. Kerberos server, OAuth server, whatever. And then you have the service provider. And the application is the service, AAD is an is the right. identity provider. Mm -hmm. And this is important because prior to this research, you had, hey, I only want you to listen to my Active uh, Azure Active Directory, or this is a multi-tenant thing and anybody's Azure Active Directory is okay. Right. And then you needed to have logic within your application that booted out IDPs, <laughs> identity providers, mm -hmm. that weren't on the okay list. Mm -hmm. They've since, as in response to this, made it a lot easier to, to limit the IDPs. Previously, there wasn't an option to say, hmm. just let these IDPs authenticate. Right. Um, now that's an option, and so it's a much easier to default into a secure configuration so, or, or, or okay. come to a secure configuration, which I think is really important. Yeah, I'm kind of surprised that wasn't there by default. Uh, so one one item that, that, was in, that was interesting, because I think that this conflicts with something that, that, that some of the folks that I've worked with have said, which is that ten ID, tenant IDs in Azure are not secret. There we go. I mean, that's so like, that's important. If, if anybody's told you different, don't, do not consider them secret. Do not consider them security information. You're going to have to tell me because I, I don't do Azure at all. What is It's basically the identifier of your environment. Oh, okay. The technical proxy, the useful proxy for your account ID. Mm, okay. They fixed this. But he proved at one point you could authenticate and go to your IDP, but you could forge which IDP it came from. Oh, okay. <laughs> so you could use your an account, your account to your IDP, but say that you were from GitHub or Google or whatever. Mm. So as long as you knew the tenant ID of the of the organization you wanted to impersonate, right? Yeah, you could just forge it. They mm. have since to say that they have since stopped that from happening. <laughs> but the fact that it was there was a little, mm. yeah. yeah, that feels like a, a non-user declarable. It shouldn't be user declarable. Yeah, yeah. So another thing that that was that was interesting here. So two the, the two last things I'm going to come. 
Like she re- I feel, realized that they were like, we're not even halfway through the first day and I've been going for a little bit. <laughs> um, one was, I was able to enumerate Azure Web Apps mm. um, by using passive DNS to find uh, basically everything that was azurewebsite.com, like because all web apps or something or something got azurewebsite.com. Oh, okay. So he used passive DNS to enumerate all of that and mm. then use that as his test to find all the multi-tenant apps and then try to authenticate to, to them using that. So I, that, right. that was okay. that That's was cool. that was interesting. The other thing was 25% of the multi-tenant apps he surveyed were vulnerable to to this stuff, as in they weren't doing anything in the application layer to stop people. Mm-hmm. 25% is a lot, yeah, but it's a lot less than I thought. <laughs> I assumed that there were more bad developers out there. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, you think. So actually parallel to that, there were, uh, someone was talking about low-code, no-code apps, which is basically um, kind of the big thing in the room for that would be Microsoft Power Platform. Okay. Um, that will, depending on what you're using, you can it, you can say, oh, I want to keep take a survey of this. I want to keep track of people's information for onboarding or whatever. Okay. Like if you were going to remake something close to meetup.com mm-hmm. in, a, in a low-code, no-code app, right. it, it'll help you create the form and it'll automatically create the schema of the database and, and build that for you. Okay. So. Huh. You just have to kind of understand the data and what you want, yeah, yeah, yeah. and it'll do a lot of the work for you, both in terms of creating the infrastructure and the visual the visualization. You just kind of have to have to define how am I going to get this information and then go right. Through. Interesting. Um, and actually, like I see some uses for that. We we've got a PHP DASP based dashboarding system that we're pulling a bunch. Of, we've done a lot of work on the back end to pull the database the database together. Mm-hmm. Um, but the PHP is getting hard to maintain. Yeah, yeah. There's no reason why we can't point something like Power BI, which is just the visualizer side of Power of Power Platform, at the set, at the database that we already have, mm-hmm. and then you know replicate all this all this non-interactive dashboarding functions. Yeah, right in there. So like, it's got some really cool use cases for for democratizing <clears throat> the kind of small app technology. Right. But there's a lot of secure, potential security implications because there's a lot of um, pieces of, the, of, of, of things that it can enable people to do that have some security implications. Mm. Like there were a few, there were a few things that I found interesting. One was, one that they demonstrated was like we have restricted the ability of people for forwarding emails, their internal emails, to like their home email. Right. Right. Yeah. Well, you can make a power app that reads your your uh, your inbox takes the body of the message out and creates an entirely new email mm, and then sends and, it on its way and sends it on its main mm. without, without being a forward or a forwarding rule. Right. Yeah. <laughs> hmm. um, and which makes it kind of harder to track down. Yeah. Uh, I noticed some stuff that looked, that brought to mind some stuff that happened in some old school phishing stuff where you get somebody to go to something that was essentially a cloned version of your bank's website mm-hmm. and yeah. it would send stuff off. But one of the things that they found with things like that was that the person who wrote the site would embed their credentials in there too oh, and okay. in like encoded some way. Mm-hmm. And so the who every credential got stolen went to the person who hosted it and sent out the spam, but also the person that made the made the site. <laughs> um, so like Power BI apps, BI apps that are portable may have the ability to embed embed certain linkage stuff into mm. the application. Yeah. So one potential 
logging is a, is a weird security hazard area because each app logs itself and you have to do a fair bit of work to centralize that logging. Mm-hmm. But also, unless you tell it specifically not to, it logs every piece of information that goes into the input side. Mm-hmm. So if there's any sensitive information that was ever submitted, it's not just stored in the database, it's also stored in the logs. Oh, <laughs> yeah, okay, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and this is all used OAuth, so some of the OAuth stuff we talked about earlier also mm-hmm. applies. Uh, another thing is that every action taken, and this is the last thing I'll talk about on, on, in terms of this, but in Power Platform, every, every you create the app, and every action taken by that app is under your user ID. Mm-hmm. Um, and maybe even you create a service account for that. You say, okay, well, I've done my prototyping. I'm just going to rebuild this under this service account. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the problem is that everybody who uses the app is logged as whatever account owns the app. Oh, really? So there's no identity oh. pass-through in that. Uh, I was thinking like one of the things in AWS CloudTrail is that the um, is that you'll get like a role assumed by principal. Mm-hmm. So you have both the principal and essentially the account that it, the, the the role permissions that it used to do a thing. Right. Like yeah. so, that makes their logs complicated and difficult to analyze sometimes, mm-hmm. but at least all the information is in one place. Yeah. 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 Not having like who used it yeah. um, makes auditing. Well, it, it, yeah. Well, I mean, it's against uh, like the NIST stuff that mm-hmm. you have to, con- that, well, I guess we both have to conform. To the time. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But um, NIST is like no shared accounts. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Guess what? Guess what this is doing. Mm-hmm. There was some interesting stuff on AWS permission explosion, uh, where essentially somebody just took a graph database of what permissions were used by various roles, matched that up against the permissions that were granted to that role, mm-hmm. and mapped it out in a graph database, one of those spider diagrams. Okay. And used that and essentially surveying. Okay, how often was were each of these permissions used by each of these roles mm. over the last n days, and and creating some ratios based on that to start culling the permissions that were that were allowed, right? Um, so that that really constrained the permissions each role had and made it a lot e- a lot easier to visualize mm, okay. um, and a lot easier to 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 keep track of things. I think this is an interesting and potentially useful technique, but. I'm worried that it's only solving part of the problem and in solving only part of the problem, it actually causes uh, more complexity Mm -hmm. um, because you're going to get people that need to use certain permissions sometimes. And now you've created a lot of extra overhead to allow them to use it. Right. Yeah. Uh, It was was one of the simpler examples that I came up with. Mm -hmm. So there was the SSL slippery slope, which which was the one about the signature, the, the, uh, code signing validation mm-hmm. issues. Then uh, the one that I skipped out on that one to catch up on is was uh, uh, there was prosecution of the down them distributed denial of service service, where if you knew somebody's IP, you could you could bust them. Mm, okay. Uh, this is, it was not the only service, but this is the one that they prosecuted. Uh, the, it was uh, U.S. versus Matthew Gantrell. Um, it was re- I think it recently finished up. I don't know if he's been sentenced yet. Um, oh, I'm, just, I'm assuming the server was hosted in the U.S.? Uh, I believe so. Mm-hmm. But at least he was in the U.S. Yeah. Um, which is all that really counts. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, but they were looking at these booting services and kind of what, the booting market. And when they took him down, the market kind of 
fairly quickly replaced a lot of the capacity, right. but they managed to actually influence the, the market that was fairly evenly spread out. Mm. And, and they essentially managed to shake it up in a way where a few people came out winners. Okay. And they went after them again. Yeah. Um, in fact, the, this, some of the lessons of this is like, how do we go after organized cybercrime? Mm-hmm. I mean, this is not the scariest cybercrime out there. But it is organized in yeah, yeah. cybercrime. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah. The nice thing about it, about distributed denial of service stuff, is it's actually pretty easy to track mm-hmm. when you have um, ISP level flow data. Right. Yeah. So they went after all of the bigger players after they had that market compression mm-hmm. all at once, and being able to hit them all at once had a, a much more significant effect than taking one, just one actor out. Yeah. Um, so I thought that was pretty interesting. There was a point that was made by the FBI agent who was talking about all of this that was saying, that was saying that we need to systematically make make it more difficult for attackers, mm-hmm. not just the idea of if I make it more difficult for the attacker on my network, I'll go attack somebody else. <laughs> yeah. This is taking mm-hmm. that idea and saying, well, what if we made it more difficult for them to do it to, for everyone? Will we just have less cybercrime? Mm-hmm. Will the barrier to entry start going up to the point where these things happen less often? Right. Yeah. That's going to take some thinking from me because uh, one of the things that's come, that came up was that we don't report a lot of abuse, mm-hmm. especially traffic mm-hmm. abuse, because no one's doing anything about it. Right. Yeah. I'm actually going to skip the closing keynote, which was. Ukraine cyber defense stuff because there's a lot more about policy and cooperation than actual incidents. Mm-hmm. It's very important that our, we've got that cooperation going. I just I didn't get a lot of interesting stuff out of it. Right. Yeah. The Thursday keynote actually kind of dovetails with the point I was just making about with the, with the FBI agent. This was uh, with the White House uh, policy director about cybersecurity. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know name right here. I should have put that in here, uh, knowing that we were going to try and record this. Um, but one of the big points was, how do we make the internet safer for everyone? Because right now, the more money you have, the more access to expertise you have, the safer you are. Right. Trying to do network defense on, on, on free stuff mm-hmm. is a lot harder today than it was 10, 12 years ago. Because we're so IOC driven right now. Yeah, yeah, I have, I have noticed a, like a lot of push um, from last year's DEFCON and like this one's calendar of kind of like, hey, U.S. hackers or U.S. security engineers, please go work for nonprofits or like help yeah. them in some way. Because yeah, like they don't have the funds. Yeah, um, I don't know that I'm there with with any of the strats that I've seen thus far. I'm going to mm-hmm. take an attempt at contributing in a couple of different ways. I'm definitely. Uh, as soon as I get back home, going to try and um, contribute back and give some comments to some of the White House directive and policy stuff that that, that they recently put out at oh, yeah, yeah. the end of March. Mm-hmm. And there's a few other things that I want hmm. that I might give a swing at, but it's like what you're doing right now is asking us to volunteer our time in a way that doesn't help us in resume fodder. You're asking for essentially free work. Yeah. And... One of the things that we found out in the open source world is that asking for free work doesn't doesn't result in zero work, but it ends up with a popular a little bit of a popularity problem more than anything. Yeah, 
you get one person that makes a lot of headway in one little niche thing that they're interested in, mm-hmm. but, the, but the baton doesn't get passed because they're the only one working the problem. Yeah, yeah. Bigger projects have more participants because where people got involved for whatever reason, it was popular either because it was, it was something that inspired a lot of people or it happened to have kind of the right social spark at the right time. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's not always predictable what gets that. Yeah. The direction of resources <laughs> isn't going to work out very well if they're just asking for volunteers yeah yeah that, that is very true and i mean altruism only extends so far yeah like, limited amount of time on this earth <laughs> yes um so uh there was a talk about uh called uncovering azure silent threats um which basically was like um every cloud machine learning service is based on jupyter notebooks which is an open source project for doing machine learning um projects okay and because of that and so there were several flaws in kind of the implementation of jupyter notebooks um he f- was focusing on azure active directory's problem so i don't know exactly how far this extends mm-hmm. but there was a lot of there was like no security boundary between instances within the same environment and right they all had full access to the data store so if you got in one you kind of won them all <laughs> um if you were a malicious participant that was invited you mm-hmm. you get credentials that anybody had saved to basically any instance. Yeah. And there was a lot of like exposure of um, credentials and logging. Mm-hmm. Of, uh, um, when you mounted the file system, it exposed the credential that allowed that to happen mm. in the logs. Okay. Oh, shit. Stuff like that. And again, a lot of this stuff did get fixed, but yeah. there, to me, one of the things that was very interesting was that was the level of QA issue that was ever present mm-hmm. here. I uh, have in my notes, like you could found so much of this by just going grep dash I pass slash var slash message log <laughs> slash messages. Yes. Um, so, uh, and uh, I guess the last thing I'm going to mention is that I didn't realize this. We did an episode on the MITRE a- 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 attack framework. Mm-hmm. There was an, um, there's a MITRE Atlas framework for machine learning. Oh, really? So one of the things that is kind of, hey, follow up on this mm-hmm. is, are there other MITRE frameworks I really should know about? <laughs> yeah, yeah, okay. I, yeah, I know that. There was a talk about bypassing AWS CloudTrail. Okay. Basically, the AWS develops their API in a fairly regimented way. Mm-hmm. They decide what it's going to do. They call this a model-first design. Okay. And they say this is what it's going to do. And then they have these various generations uh, of, uh, of development, uh, alpha, beta, gamma, test, that kind of thing. Yeah. And so, turns out, like, one of the most profitable ways of doing this is by making function calls Mm -hmm. to some of the test services, which are named in a structured way so that he was able to find most of them pretty easily. Okay. Um, So, if you make a function call to the, you know, IAM gamma service, Mm -hmm. maybe it works, gives you a response, and doesn't log to... Um, well, actually, what will happen is it'll work and it won't give you any output because it's not looking at the functional data, but it means that the whatever account you're using had the permission to do that. Right, yeah. Um, so you can do, you can probe the permissions mm-hmm. without causing CloudTrail logs because the Gamma service doesn't write to CloudTrail. Oh, okay. Now, there were other instances where it would write to CloudTrail, but, but it would write it differently than if it had happened to write to the regular service. Because mm-hmm. um, the regular service you have the source as the name of the service.aws.com or amazonaws.com, like, like iam.com. 
AmazonAWS.com. Right. Yes. In this case, it'd be like uh, he show was showing an example of Gamma Starfish. Amazon AWS dot com, and if you've got automation and your rules are looking for a particular function on a particular service, and you're filtering for both parameters. Right. You're miss that. Mm. And some systems, the built-in rules, the way that they wrote them, that's the way that they work. Right. Right. Another way was by using undocumented APIs. Sometimes he was able to find things that were used in, in kind of the administration creation mm-hmm. of things. So they could list out things that w- that you wouldn't normally list out, but those weren't logged in CloudTrail either. Right. <laughs> um, they used the same permissions, but they were functions that didn't expose the use to CloudTrail. Mm-hmm. CloudTrail being AWS's log everything. No, really, we mean everything, except apparently not really everything service. Right, yeah, yeah. It is a fire hose, but it is... The level of detail has been helpful to me because it allows me to uh, to audit everything once I've figured out how they worked. Mm-hmm. And, I, and the the so the last two one was uh, lifting the fog of war uh, in MSRPC, and what that was about was he attached an event tracer mm-hmm. to the RPC service and allow and that got all the RPC call information right, directly right. as kind of a debugging message. Mm-hmm. And that was formatted in a much more functional and helpful way than we usually get with uh, with Microsoft Event Logs, which we have talked about <laughs> our love of earlier. Oh, God, yeah. Um, and I could see very quickly how I could make much more functional alerting based on those logs and, mm-hmm. and define normal behavior much better based on those logs. Uh, so it was kind of a better insight into what was happening with RPC service calls. Yeah. I would, I would, These are all remote RPC service calls, it should be said. Right. I mean, I don't know. I'm sure there's some documentation somewhere, some write-up or YouTube video of, like, why Microsoft logs the way it does and, like, why it was set up that way. But it's just like, oh, man, it's, this is one of those things like, well, like, we did it poorly in the past. Let's keep doing it poorly because so much stuff is tied like, we don't log like this Internet Explorer won't work for yeah, some right. reason. Yeah, everybody says we're not going to change it because legacy reasons, right? Uh-huh. Until they want to. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And then they're like, oh, yeah, it was easy to change this entire time. Well, I mean, it breaks some stuff, but like rip the band-aid off sometimes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And this also lets you develop. Um, there are some systems for, for creating um, RPC, remote RPC, essentially firewall rules. Mm-hmm. And you can use this to see what normal is and mm-hmm. you can now start blocking calls that aren't used on your network. Right. I mean, this is the, the classic firewall strategy of, Oh, we'll just put it in, allow everything mode and figure out what the rules need to be, which nobody does, mm-hmm. but maybe you can do it with this. <laughs> <laughs> and the last talk I went to was a researcher basically said, Hey, um, I think the radiation levels detected in Chernobyl in 2022, in February 2022, mm-hmm. were forged. Oh, okay. I haven't gotten a chance to read the paper, and I'm not sure I followed all of the logic. But basically, this was when the Russians went through. Mm-hmm. They saw some spikes in the. Uh, so they were detect. They have these detectors that. Are solar powered and they and they report via Skylink satellite. Mm. 
uh, and they have a gamma ray detector, and they have an aerosol um, radiation detector. Okay. So this is how much ambient radiation is there, mm -hmm. and then there's how much like particulate ambient and particular right. radiation. So you get more if something gets kicked up, the rate ambient radiation level isn't going to change, mm -hmm. but it's going to be more dangerous because there's more particulate stuff in the air if somewhere one were to go there. Right. Yeah. That makes um, sense. As opposed to like a containment failure, which would be more ambient radiation. Mm -hmm. But they're detecting both of these things. Like and. One may be a lagging indicator of the other. Mm -hmm. So they, they saw this big spike in the aerosol thing in some in some particular things, and then those sensors apparently went offline. Oh, okay. And everybody's let and, and the the, the um, <laughs> IAEA um, I forget what that what what um, that stands for. IAEA. International Association of Energy Associations. It might be the uh, International Atomic Energy Association. Yeah, that, could be that, that, that might be yeah. the guess. <laughs> but uh, the thing is, what he detected, what he thought he saw was like that the, that the levels mm -hmm. went mm -hmm. down much faster than they should have. They, mm. should, they should have kind of sloped down and they just went right back down to normal. Okay. And there's no like security authentication in this. There's no integrity built into the system. Right, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so it's possible that if they were transmitting from the right place, using the right protocols, like they could forge the response. Mm -hmm. And I I need to read the paper. This is one of those things where I, I don't think I fully understand the argument in order to, to say whether or not I believe it or not. He is an iconoclast. It, like his, his claims are, are have not been ex accepted by the folks that are charged internationally with monitoring this stuff. Right. But there was some mm -hmm. stuff in there that I was like... <laughs> All right, I need to understand this before I just discount what he's saying. So, was it explained why it would be forged? Uh, because the Russians went through the Red Forest. Mm. They went through the Chernobyl exclusion zone. Right, 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 right. And we don't know what they did there. We think it's okay because the detectors we have tell us that it's not that bad. Mm, gotcha. Okay, okay. I wasn't sure if there was like like more hiding than like... Just troop movements um, kicking it up, sort of thing. Yeah. Well, I mean, some of the things that the Russians have done and threatened, mm -hmm. it would be hard to completely dismiss them sabotaging the Yeah, that is true, yeah. And I don't think that I'm being hyperbolic with that. No, no. Part of what I found interesting here was... Um, when I was thinking about it was that this is not the only kind of remote sensor network mm -hmm. that is less attended. In fact, what I thought about is a lot of stuff that you've talked about is spaces has some similar aspects to it where you have hardware that's long duration yeah, yeah. and doesn't have a lot of integrity systems built into it mm -hmm. that you could potentially uh, uh, false um, reports and stuff could be created under the right circumstances. Right, yeah. Under C, a lot of remote systems might be like, in fact, I'll throw out something that's a little scary. Um, oil pipelines. Mm, yeah, true. Uh, so like, so I, I thought that at the very least, this is an interesting exercise in thinking about remote sensor networks. Right, yeah. And like, how do we create an integrity <clears throat> system <clears throat> that is useful and, and, and generalizable enough for all of these use cases. Yeah, yeah, that is true. Like, I mean, at least, like, 
underwater, hard to get to, space, harder to get to, contaminated zone, I mean, hard to get to, but like, yeah, well, but more accessible, is, but yeah, I know, I know what you're saying, like, well, I mean, but the thing is, like, if you can interrupt the communications, mm -hmm. hard to get to doesn't matter. Yeah, yeah, that is true. Yeah, I guess I was thinking more spoofing than just like full on interruption. Yeah, well, well, you'd have to do both. You'd have mm. to spoof and interrupt. Yeah. So yeah. that's what I learned in the first part of Hacker Summer Camp. <laughs> Stay tuned for part two. Find out about new episodes at r slash hacking the Gibson on Reddit and support the podcast by contributing at the Wikimedia Foundation or Electronic Frontier Foundation.